You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Daniel Howitt's interview with the composer for Luca, Dan Romer. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me about your score for Luca. Excited to dive in. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. So what better way to open an interview than by reading one of your tweets to you? Uh, <laughs> I, wait, can I get, I want to guess what it is. Yes. I'm sure that it's not that hard. Is it, I really like plucturing? <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> yes. So, so you tweeted just for, for those playing along at home. You tweeted it just a couple weeks ago. I really, in all caps, I really like plucked strings. It's true. That's the tweet. So I just, man, you you put that out in the world. Obviously, we can we can tell from your from your work that you do indeed like plucked strings. What is it? What is it about plucked strings? Why are those such an integral part of your musical style? So Daniel, I, I just wanted to make sure that people really knew, you know? Just in case anyone was like, well, I don't know if he likes them. I wanted to be like, I like them. Um, yeah, that was that was like that was one of my all-time dumbest tweets, and I was like, <laughs> really proud of it. And I, I I remember I actually texted a friend after writing that, and I was like, is this dumb? Should I not? And he's like, no, no, it's great. You're great. Um, yeah, I mean, so where this comes from is that uh, it's, this really com- comes from me uh, comes from uh, me and Ben Zeitlin. The Beast of the Southern Wild director and my co-composer in that movie, because um, Ben and I both came up listening to rock music. Um, ben was in like a, a like a grunge band when he was in high school. I was in like um, what we called indie rock bands, but you know it's like we were just rock bands that weren't signed because we were sixteen. Um, and so um, uh, yeah, we were both like for both of us. There's a very specific thing that's in our musical vocabulary that doesn't so much exist necessarily in classical music, which is uh, the palm-muted guitar. Uh, in rock music, this is just standard old hat stuff. When you're doing a verse, I mean, this is obviously the thing about pop music is you can do anything you want to do. And when I say pop music, I just mean music that people listen to. I don't mean necessarily top 40 music. I mean, you know, when I say pop music, I mean, I do mean, you know, Katy Perry. I do mean uh, 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 Doja Cat. I, I, I do mean uh, uh, Britney Spears. Uh, but I also mean Tom Waits. I also mean Louis Armstrong. I also mean The Flaming Lips. I also mean Joanna Newsom. You know, like, um, just music for people. Um, music for humans. Norm, for normal human listeners. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, um, sorry, I got sidetracked with that whole pop explanation. Um, so, you know, it's very common as in, in rock music, especially in like the 90s, uh, early 2000s, to like have a, have a, uh, a, 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 a Seafood Fighters monkey wrench, for example, where you have like a uh, palm muted verse, and then you get to the chorus, it's like, so that envelope, when I say envelope, I mean, um, the way a sound uh, expresses itself temporally in time. So when I, so the envelope or envelope of a pizzicato string is boom, like that. 
Uh, if you play a string with a bow, it's like, uh, for as long as you want it. Um, with the guitar, if you strum full out, it's like that. But the envelope for a palm beat guitar is, so that's a really, really useful timbre that Ben and I, in our lives, were just used to having access to. So when we started scoring films together, we were like, we don't really want to use guitar because it like makes it, and, and look, and you know, we're going to get back to this because I used a ton of guitar on Luca. Um, but, you know, using, for us at that moment, using a guitar felt a little bit like we were singer-songwriters at a coffee shop trying to make a film score. And we wanted to really, for our stuff, and, and we did use guitar, actually, in, in Death, to our Tin, Death of the Tin Man, our first short we ever did together. But that was sort of going like a folky, like, Appalachian kind of place. So for his two shorts that we, for his two movies that we then did, Glory at Sea and The Beast of the Southern Wild, we really wanted to stay away from a guitar sound, like a real guitar sound. Um, so uh, we ended up, <clears throat> as our replacement for palm muted guitars, we ended up using pizzicato strings. <clears throat> and like, I think it's a very standard thing to use pizzicato strings for comedy. And that's something that I really try to stay away from. Um, I love pizzicato. When, and when I say plucked, pizzicato and plucked are the same thing. Pizzicato means plucked. Um, when I use, uh, when I, when I, when I do comedy cues, I really try to stay away from pizzicato strings. Cause like for me, and I'm not saying for anyone else, it's not cool. For me, I feel like the pizzicato thing doesn't feel right doing comedy. It feels a little bit stale to me. And I like pizzicato as an emotional or a, um, pro or momentum creating force. That's great. No, and and I, I really like that distinction between using it for comedy, the, the comedy style score, but kind of adopting it for what you're kind of have, have made the name for yourself in these adventurous sort of sort of scores, which brings us back to Luca. This is your first animation score. Uh, you, you've, you've scored a number of projects, of course, but this is your first one in animation. Did that change anything uh, about your style at all or, or your approach to the film? Oh, the fact that it was animation? Did yes. That um, yeah, I mean, not in terms of like, oh, I've got to do this now because it's animation, you know. I mean, everyone was very clear when we were talking about this, you know, this should be scored, at, you know, as a film, the way you understand filmmaking, the way you, Dan Romer, understand how to score things. We don't want you saying, oh, I'll give you an animated version of Dan Romer that we want what you do on this film. And I will say that, you know, there is more changing happening. Uh, you know, cues don't get to hang around quite as long as usual on uh, as maybe some other things I do. But I mean, there are things that I work on that change that fast that aren't animation. You know, um, especially some TV shows. You know, um, so. But then you know, there's there then there's scores like you know, um, like uh, like Maniac uh, or like Beast of No Nation or or Zoe, where a cue will stick around for like five, six minutes and, and change very subtly in order to highlight what's going on as to not over, not to overdo it. Yeah. Uh, when you approached, when you first got on to Luca, can you tell me about some of the direction that Enrico gave you? What was, what was kind of the starting point for you to, to get working on music? Yeah. Um, well, so he showed, so they, they showed me a, um, like a storyboarded version of the film and storyboards are, you know, um, kind of rough sketches of the action so we can tell what's going on. So I watched a version with that and they had a lot of my music in there that they edited to, which was really lovely. Um, and, um, 
So I watched that, and then we kind of talked about what the theme should be, and then I started writing themes. And Enrico really loved the themes, but he did say, like, I would like everything to sound a little more Italian. And then so there was a bit of a back and forth of like, all right, like, I'm, you know, I did a deep dive into a lot of Italian film score music, a lot of Italian pop music from the 60s, because it takes place somewhere, like, in around that area of time. Uh, it's never explicitly said. Um, and then I came back with, like, a much more Italian sound. And then Enrico was like, ah, you know, this is, you know, I, I appreciate this, but, uh, you know, I want this to sound more like you and less Italian. You know, I don't want you to be doing like a pastiche of Italian music. So then I pulled back um, and kind of hit sort of a middle path between, you know, because my first version, I was trying things with like using like um, crunching leaves as percussion um, and like kind of more experimental techniques that had to do with the world around. Because, you know, a lot of the idea early on was like, all right, well, if there's going to be the water world and then the, 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 the world above, like how can we make them... Um, timbrely different. Uh, what, how can we make them um, the different instruments? Uh, you know, have different sounds for the two areas. And you know, one of the ideas, like, well, there's like leaves blowing up. But let's like get these leaves. And so it kind of was like, okay, let's not get so experimental in that, in that, like, so away from traditional film score. But let's not get so old school Italian. Let's sort of meet in this middle place where it's like I'm doing my kind of music that comes from my heart. Um, but doing it with sort of an Italian spin. Leaves as percussion, that's fascinating. Did, did any of that make it in, or was that too experimental and you, you threw it away? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that ended up on the cutting room floor that didn't, didn't work, but the whistling was something that was there very early on that, that stayed. Yeah, that works really well. I, I've heard you say in other interviews that that, that was a, an Italian friend of yours. Uh, is that a coincidence, or is that, uh, was that part of your, your process of like research or whatever? Well, I don't know if I would have attempted a whistle without knowing that Josue uh, uh, was the best whistler I've ever met in my life. I mean, we would have whistling competitions at our old studio when we were allowed to be around each other in person, um, where, like, it was funny because Josue is just, like, the most incredible whistler. So we would all go around the circle, and then when we got to him, he'd just be like, I can't whistle like him, but he'd do somewhere over the rainbow in this, like, and it was, like, heartbreaking, like, vibrato, dynamics, just, like, gorgeous version of this and we're like all oh, on the verge of tears and it's like this guy can whistle um so yeah and and Josue, uh, uh his name is Josue Greco and he was also helping me along with like he was he also made me a playlist of music to listen to from uh, music from back home and we he's he's not just an Italian friend um we've been making music together for the last five years good clarity yeah thank you for that hello this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, 
messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. What were some of those uh, Italian elements when you, when you went a little too far into making it sound Italian and had to scale it back? What were some of the musical elements that that sounded so Italian? You know, it had to do more with the harmony and melody and sort of, um, I mean, you know, without getting too far into like musicology and how different like musics of, you know, for lack of a better word, infect each other. You know, I mean, the, you know, the way that music works is what, there, there's no countries with music really. It's all just what's, if there's, if, if, if you have a country on the border of another country, those two countries on the borders are gonna have mus musical things in common. You know, and so there is, oh, I really don't wanna say the wrong thing here, um, but there, you know, there's, there's, there is a harmony that I think there's a harmonic, um, trope that I think is shared with French music and jazz, um, where you'll have, um, a melody that sort of repeats at different moments in a scale. So like, da, 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 like that kind of a thing where it's like the same melody, but repeating in different spots. And you hear that a lot. I've heard, I've, I've heard that. I don't want to make sweeping statements about culture, different cultures, musics, but I heard that a lot in, in, in certain Italian film score stuff. And, you know, and that was not the vibe of um, these long melodies that repeat in different spots was not our vibe for melodically for this movie. It ended up being more short little bursts of melody. Yeah, definitely. Uh, some some of those big themes that really I, I come away like stuck in my head from Luca uh, are like moments in like Take Me Gravity, just the the big sweeping orchestral moments. Where do you kind of start with some of those the 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 kind of key themes for the film? Well, I was for for like the key themes. I was just thinking about the different characters' personalities and their journeys and who they are, mostly who they are. And just thinking about what kind of melodies would really represent them the best. You know, um, for Luca, and let me see if I have something in tune. Hold on. That'll do. For Luca, uh, we have this big jump in it. It's like, that big da 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 da
my head voice isn't in great shape right now. Um, but so we have all these big jumps there. Um, and I think that's very important for Luca, where he's sort of like reaching to the outside world. Whereas Alberto's melody uh, is this kind of rousing. Da, 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 da. meant to be very like fist pumpy and like let's go let's go whereas Julia's melody is sort of more of a more of an Italian melody uh it's like um and I felt because she was more of a legit Italian and kind of more in that world um, I felt like she deserved more of that kind of a melody. That's so good. I've I've seen you say in other interviews that you you talk about placing limitations uh, on yourselves in in projects. And for Luca, you said there no synthetic elements was a limitation that you placed on yourself. Can you talk uh, more about that? It was was every single element captured live at, at some point? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, of course, when you're making stuff, there's always little ways that you have to figure out how to get the sounds exactly the way you want them. But yeah, there's no, um, there's no sounds that are just like, um, you know, timbres that just come from like a plug-in where you're just like plug and plug and play sort of. And there's no, uh, I, that's probably that no one understands who's not a composer. I, um, there, you know, it's not like there's a there's a there's software where I'm like pressing a key and it makes like a, a a big drone, you know, a big sound. Um, there's no synthesizers. Um, it's all essentially things that were recorded in a room with microphones, um, more or less. It's a, it's a thin, thin line of what, what that means sometimes. How do you think that placing that limitation on yourself challenged you on this project? Well, I'll tell you, like, there are certain old standbys I have, like old, you know, I don't want to say tricks, but like there's some like things that I do to create certain sounds where I'm like that are in the synthetic world um, where I'm like, I know I can do this thing and it will immediately, you know, I mean, one of the big ones is is the Mellotron. Um, that's been a huge part of my my music for a very long time from and, and, and that stretch from when I was doing almost only producing pop music over to film scoring, where a Mellotron is essentially the first sampler. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a keyboard instrument uh, that was, I'm not sure if it's technically invented in the 50s or the 60s. I think some people would argue that the Chamberlain, um, which came right before it, I believe, was in the 50s, and that's essentially actually the first sampler, and that's what we're talking about. But um, it was a little keyboard that had tape loops inside of each key, and when you would press the, the key, it would trigger the tape loop to play. So if there was a flute Mellotron, uh, you would put a flute tape bank inside of the Mellotron, you press it and it's like, plays the flute sound. And then you go a, a key high, uh, you know, uh, one key up and it's like, it's the same flute player just sitting there, but it's only eight seconds of each key. Cause that's how long the player played each note on, on just across the board. That's how long the tape loops are. Um, and so you, the, most uh, commonly someone would recognize this sound from the sound uh, from the song "Strawberry Fields," that that introduction flute, the that's a Mellotron flute. Um, so I do a lot of stuff with Mellotrons, where I'll I'll play a Mellotron and then I'll put like a ton of different effects on it to make it sound kind of expansive and uh, you know sort of um, 
you know, otherworldly. And I, you know, so there's, I couldn't use any, any tricks like that. Any of my, those kinds of sounds had to come from a lot of those kinds of timbres when I needed, a lot of those kinds of sounds when I needed to get them came from accordions, came from violins, came from flutes, that kind of stuff. Well, you, you've uh, kind of made this name for yourself in a lot of coming of age projects. You've of course scored many other types of projects. I don't want to put, put you in a box here, but what do you think it is about your style that, that works so well for these adventurous, uh, kind of loving life sorts of stories? Um, that's, that's, no one's ever asked that before. That's a hard, that's a good question. And I'm like thinking about it myself. I'm actually like (laughs) kind of about to cry, honestly, thinking about it. I'm sorry if I, um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's something about the emotion of, of, of getting older that I really, you know, fear and relate to. And I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I uh, those stories, I, I, I just really emotionally relate to, I think. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, uh, sorry about this. No, no, no. I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the vulnerability. Uh, I hope those are, I hope those are good tears. Uh, no, they're uh, laughing tears. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really, uh, just as validation, I mean, those, those, uh, you really do have this way of capturing the feeling of youthful energy. Uh, and, and it really just, Luca is my favorite film score of the year, uh, because it just captures, just the joy of life so well. Um, so just uh, no question attached to that, just uh, as validating uh, your work. It's, it's really brilliant. I'm really grateful for it. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how much that means. That's, that's so incredible to hear, you know, and, and, and I, really love, I really loved making that music and I, and I really hope that people, that people uh, enjoy it as much as possible. Well, before I let you go, we are towards the end of the year here. I, I, I'm just always curious what professionals in the film world, what other things you admire. So I, I, I'm curious, uh, are there other film scores from this year that have stood out to you that you're, you're just a, a fan of? Um, I feel really embarrassed about this, but I kind of went back and just, I, I, I've been watching a lot of Twin Peaks this year. Again, yeah, and man, that music is is just so incredible. I found myself this year, for whatever reason, instead of watching a ton of new stuff, kind of going back, kind of going back to a lot of older stuff. I mean, you know, I've been listening to, uh, um, yeah, I mean, man, that first season of that the, the the music in the first season of Twin Peaks is just unbe- unbeatable. You know, so you know, I mean, I'm sure you can hear a lot of melodic influence between you know, between Badalamenti's music and, 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 and my melodic sense. I mean, I, you know, that score is just, and it's really amazing. Like you, like that, they use that, you know, oh, I mean, I could talk all day about why that score is amazing, but like they just use that Laura Palmer's theme unedited again and again and again. And you always love it and you always want it and you're always into it. And that piece of music starts off 
dark with the da na da na na or does it? I can't remember. I think it does start that way. But then it grows with this big emotional thing and then goes back to that dark thing, that dark brooding thing. And the scenes always seem to be either written, sla written and or edited to the idea of it starting dark, getting big and emotional, and then going dark again at the end. And it's just amazing. It feels like the show is like written to work with that piece of music. You know, well, I, I was gonna I was gonna say that I feel like it's been a it's been a long time since I've watched Twin Peaks to be fair, but I do feel like music did a lot of heavy lifting in the show, really setting the tone for a lot of those scenes because, like you said, it just followed that the path of the music a lot. Yeah, it's incredible work. Yeah, awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, going over your tweets with me, and uh, I, I apologize for for making you cry. <laughs> You weren't the first, you won't be the last. Awesome, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. All right, bye. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interview with the composer for Luca, Dan Romer, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Luca is currently available to stream on Disney Plus and has been shortlisted as one of the films eligible this year for Best Animated Feature at the 94th Academy Awards. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.